Jay, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews 1. We are going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, But before we get there, uh, I just wanted to kind of give a little insight into um, my role over the past couple of years. One of my areas here at the church for the past few seasons has been um, in launching and overseeing our student ministry, our middle schoolers and our high schoolers. And uh, we just kicked off last Wednesday again. It was awesome. Uh, Wednesday night, this room was covered in cereal dust and Legos and streamers, and it was just chaos, and it was awesome. I love it. Um, but something's happened over, as a lot, as, over the last few years as I've spent time with our middle schoolers as they grow into high schoolers, um, as two of my favorite ones walk in the door right now, um, and I just singled them out. Um, what I, I've, it, it causes me every so often to look back and remember high school, and just, we're, we're family, real, like, who would go back to high school? Raise your hand. We got one, two, Jeff, you're weird, three... Dion Wood. Okay, a few, of, a few of you are just weird and awkward, um, and you want to go back. There is not enough money in the world for me to want to go back to high school. I love you high schoolers. You guys are awesome. I, I, like middle schoolers, you're fixing to be high schoolers, and it's just going to get weird. Um, but it's just, it's a hard season for most of us. Um, some of you, you guys were the cool kids in class, and you'd go back. That was great. Um, but for the rest of us, we are so glad that's in the rearview mirror. High school's hard. Like, you, you drive, you kind of have some responsibility, but you still desperately need your parents for everything. But you don't want to talk to them because you're cool to, cool, too cool to talk to them. And all they do is ask you questions endlessly, and they want to know how you're doing. And, you just, and, and then yet you, you kind of have a job, but it doesn't really pay you anything because you're a high school kid, so you're still broke, but your insurance is super expensive. And like, it's just hard. And then school, school is ridiculous and challenging, and they keep asking you more and more. And as I thought about this week, my high school career, like I moved from Illinois to Florida my freshman year of high school. And for some reason, my teachers hated me. They put me in advanced math my freshman year. I took Algebra 1, which when I went to high school, for a freshman, that was advanced. I wanted to be a pastor in sixth grade. This is literally all I've ever wanted to do. I don't need math. Like, that is not a thing that is necessary in my life. I use pastor math, which right now I'd look out and go, there's like 500 people in this room. That's pastor math. I use that. I just make that up because hyperbole is a part of my job description. Um, but I don't, I don't need algebra. That, I, I know some of you probably use algebra. Don't come talk to me about it later. I don't care. Um, but I had to take it as a freshman, as advanced math. And I failed miserably. So they gave me an opportunity to do it again as a sophomore, this time on grade level. And I swung and missed twice. I struck, struck out number two. I, I didn't, and so they gave me one more chance as a junior, and I think by that point, my teacher was just like, I don't want you to be the only guy in Algebra 1 with like a family and a job, so we're just going to let you go on and graduate high school. Stop coming back to this class. I never did well, and here's why I hate math. Is it enough to have the right answer? No. If by the Spirit of the Lord, I somehow stumbled upon the right answer, that wasn't ever good enough. What did you have to do? Show your work. You had to show how you got there. And I would never have any clue how I got to the right answer. I just would stumble upon it, but then still lose credit. 
And I get that's a great thing for life and showing your work is fine. But it was so frustrating and so discouraging. Well, I think this morning as we pick up in Hebrews chapter 1, what our author is doing as we finish out chapter 1 this morning is he's showing his work. Last week, we opened this letter with this deep theological statement as he just jumps right into the heart of the issue with the uh, early church and the original audience. And so I want us to reread what we talked about last week, and then we'll get into kind of his defense, or rather his explanation, as he shows his work through the rest of chapter 1. But let's just reread the verses we talked on last week in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The author starts his letter this way, saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's where we launched from last week. That's, that's how our author starts this letter. And then this morning, we're going to unpack the rest of chapter 1 as he's defending or rather going back to the Old Testament and going to, to circle around all of these truths that he, he jam-packed in the, the prologue, in this, this thesis statement that we studied last week. Um, he wants us to consider the supremacy of Jesus He wants us to consider Jesus and the impact Jesus has on our life and on our eternity. And so last week we kind of landed with uh, verse 4, that he has become superior to angels, that that his name is greater than their name, that he is better than they are. Um, And this can feel a little little foreign to our culture, possibly. But what what I want us to know this morning is that in Jewish culture, angels were revered, angels were respected, they were talked about. It was believed that angels visited Moses and gave him the law on Mount Sinai. And so there was this deep respect and reverence for the heavenly host. And yet here, our author is saying, Jesus is greater, Jesus is better. Um, He has inherited a name that is more excellent than theirs. And then now we're going to transition And we're going to see God continue to speak in verse 5, where our passage picks up this morning, um, saying, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. He launches into this this section where he's showing his work. I believe he's going back here to verse two. What we're seeing is a further explanation of that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. He's pointing, he wants the audience to consider that Jesus is the son of God and that God not only spoke through prophets and God spoke through the son, but now we're going to see from God's word, from the Old Testament, that God speaks over his son. 
And we need to take some time, because as we, as we progress through the book of Hebrews, as we study this book, um, we're going to see the author go back into the Old Testament, grab a hold of passages, grab a hold of truth, and yank them into the, the context of the early church, and then interpret them and teach them in light of who Jesus is. And so it's important that we don't go back to the Old Testament and necessarily get bogged down there, but rather we follow in the footsteps of our author where he's saying there was this truth in Psalms. Here we see Psalm 2 and um, 2 Samuel 7 being quoted. He grabs a hold of these verses. Psalm 2 was understood to be a messianic psalm. It was about the coming Messiah. And so he grabs a hold of this truth that the original audience would have known well. And he brings it into their current circumstance where they're struggling to stand firm in their faith, where there's a very real temptation in the midst of tough circumstances and a politically and economically tough climate where it's hard to stand firm and press forward in your faith. The author grabs hold of this truth that Jesus is the Son of God and he brings it forward, something they would have known, something they would have understood. And he interprets it in light of Christ. This is key to our understanding of the book of Hebrews as we move forward, is that he's grabbing hold of familiar truths and bringing them in and asking them, read this in light of who Jesus is. So what we see God say over um, Jesus is that you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's from Psalm 2. And then he says, or again, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son This is from 2 Samuel 7, where God makes a covenant with David. He promises that in the line and lineage of David, a son is going to come who will rule and reign forever and ever. And as time passes, there's this understanding that it wasn't Solomon, it wasn't any of the the offspring from David's line. They, They began to understand 2 Samuel 7 was prophecy, that it was a messianic prophecy And this would have been familiar to our audience and it would have been understood that the author here is bringing a passage about the coming of the Messiah and the Messiah was referred to and known to be the Son of God. And he was going to come and be the Son of God. And so this morning I want us, as we think about the supremacy of Jesus, I want us to consider Jesus as the Son of God. As we read the Old Testament, we see often that Israel is referred to as the sons of God. Kings are referred to as the sons of God. Angels are referred to as the sons of God. We can be referred to as sons and daughters of God, but there's only one son. The son of God is Jesus. And God speaks over him and declares him to be his son, to be the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for, the one that was going to come in the line of David who would rule and reign forever. And our author is, again, he's drawing them back to this deeper truth to elevate their thought life and consider the impact of the supremacy of Christ as the son of God. And so this morning, I want to ask us the question, why is it important that we consider Jesus as the son of God? Well, one, I think it's important because that's who God's word declares him to be. God's word says he is the son of God. God himself in Jesus's life and ministry, when he's being baptized, God in this really cool proud dad moments opens up the heavens and looks down as Jesus is walking and starting his public ministry. And he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. 
And this, the danger here, I think, as we consider the importance of Jesus as the Son of God is to read things like, in verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, where he has been begotten, we can read these and get bogged down in our culture. We could think, man, is the author of Hebrews diminishing Jesus? Is Jesus a created being? Is Jesus less than? And that's the exact opposite of our author's intent here. Do I have, who's, who's a firstborn? Anybody? You're the oldest. Yes, all of my peoples. In this culture, being a firstborn, how about firstborn men? We're my firstborn males. We are the best of the best in biblical times. We were the cream of the crop. We were pride. We were proud blessings. We were symbols of God's favor. There was this honor in being a firstborn and then being a firstborn son. That was amazing. And so the author here is really elevating their thought life around who Jesus is and showing that Jesus is better and more important. He is the firstborn. He is the son of God. He's what we strive after. He's who we look to. It says, let all God's angels worship him. The son of God, we consider Jesus as superior. We consider Jesus as the son of God because he's worthy of our worship. Because that's what the Bible tells us. That's how God has revealed himself. And I think the danger of not considering Jesus as the son of God in a, in a very PC culture where we're very concerned with like, oh, well, I mean, even in the last week or 10 days or so, like we're trying to remove gender. We're trying to de-genderize. Can I make that a word? Our culture. It's important that we consider Jesus as son and God as father because that's got how God has revealed himself. It's a way that we can sit and stand apart from culture. We can put Jesus on display. We can radiate the glory of God. We can be conduits of his grace. We can stand for his truth. Jesus is the son of God. And so we need to think of him and consider him in that way. And our author is going to continue on in verse seven. It says, of the angels. So he transitions. He's been speaking about the son. Now he's going to speak about the angels that again, our audience would have respected and thought an awful lot about and revered. He says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame, a fire. I think what we see here is our author claiming and reminding and showing his work of Jesus's superiority. Look back in verse two and verse three where we see that Jesus is the heir of all things. He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. What we're seeing here is the author pulling out um, from the Old Testament, from Psalm 104, this idea that Jesus is superior. He's better than the angels. We see that because the, the quote that he uses speaks of angels as created beings. It says he makes his angels. Angels are created Jesus is the creator that we saw in verse 2. Jesus is the exact imprint. He is the revealed nature of God. He is bigger. He is not created. We also see that angels are directed, that he makes his angels wins. His ministers, their servants, they're told what to do, where to go, and how to do things. That Jesus is superior to angels. As we consider the supremacy of Jesus, I think it's so important that we consider Jesus as more important, as above all things. And again, it can feel tough because we don't maybe spend a ton of time thinking about angels. But 
Are we not a culture fascinated with supernatural things? Just think about the success of the Avengers movies and how we are captivated by, by this idea of things, of, of beings that have special powers and abilities and are greater and bigger and more powerful than we are. And we can get drawn in and sucked in and too quickly think and magnify those type of things rather than the one who is above all things. Jesus is far superior. And I think this morning it's important for us to ask the question, well, why would we consider the superiority of Jesus? Because I'll just confess, and I feel like probably many of us this morning, we need to be more like angels. I think it's really interesting that the author has to write this statement, that he has to defend or rather remind his audience of don't think too highly of angels, consider Jesus as superior. Jesus is over angels. We need to be reminded of that. They needed to be reminded of that. Do you know who doesn't need to be reminded of that? The angels. There's no question going on in the heavenly realm this morning over whether or not Jesus is ruler and reigning over heaven, over whether Jesus is superior to angels. And we know this because we can look at Jesus' life, and we can look at the fallen angels, and they've, they've come into this man, and Jesus is walking down the road, and he sees them, and he sees this man, and he has a conversation, and the, the demons beg him. They recognize his authority. They recognize his superiority. And they say, well, you put us into this herd of pigs, and then they jump off a cliff. They know Jesus is in charge. There's not a debate going on in heaven this morning, but yet you and I are prone to forget. We need to be reminded, Jesus, you are superior. And so I think it's important for us to consider the superiority of Jesus because let's be honest. This week, did, did you live like Jesus was in charge? Like Jesus was directing, like you were a servant of him, like you were going where he directed, you were following his leadership, because that's what the angels do. They are made, they are created, they are comfortable with Jesus being in charge, and they go where he leads. Does that sound like your life this past week? Or did you go where you wanted? Did you do what you preferred? Were you in charge? I think we need to consider the superiority of Jesus because we're prone to live like we are superior not him. And I think this morning it's a helpful reminder to take maybe a playbook from the angels. Follow them as they stand in worship and they go where God leads and they follow what he says. They listen to him. And what I don't want us to see is angels as less than. Look at the power in verse seven. He makes his angels winds, his ministers, that means servants, a flame of fire. These are powerful, heavenly beings. Think back to just a few months ago when we had the winds and the fire that were causing such a problem here. We should have a healthy respect for the power of wind and fire in the front range. Some of us are probably still dealing with the effects and the fallout from that. This is not the, the author diminishing angels, but rather elevating Jesus to above them. So let us elevate our thought. Let us consider the superiority of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus, the sonship of Jesus. And then in verse eight, we're gonna see Jesus as sovereign. 
as the ruler and reigner over all things. It says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He pulls this out of Psalm 45, but what I want us to see and what I, I, we cannot miss what just happened here. Of the Son, speaking of Jesus, God says to the Son, your throne, O God. The Father just declared the deity of the Son. This is what sets us apart from all other religions. This is what makes us different from the Mormon faith. This is what makes us different from Jehovah's Witness. This is what sets us apart. We proclaim, we confess, the Bible declares Jesus is God. He is not a God. He is not like God. He was not a good prophet. He was not a good teacher. He's God. He put on flesh. That's what just happened. The Father declared of the Son, hey, you God, Jesus, your throne is forever and ever and ever. We cannot miss that. We cannot move too quickly past that. We must confess because the Bible declares it to be true. Jesus is God. He is the sovereign God-man that came to rule and reign, to lay his life down. And I love how his kingdom is described. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. Therefore, God the Father, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I love the beautiful picture of relationship between the Father and Son from this psalm that the author puts in his defense, as he's again, I want to remind us, this is more affirming. He's pointing back. He's bringing us back. He's further ex- explaining what he quoted to be true, that Jesus, after making purification for sin, in verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that Jesus rules and reigns. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. His, his kingdom is forever. He rules in righteousness and justice. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. And I'll just confess, I was studying this passage this week on Wednesday with the news on. And that's a terrible time to sermon prep. And it was so hard to read about this kingdom as I watched the exact opposite in our earthly culture. As I saw people who don't love righteousness and hate wickedness, but man, it sure feels like it's the exact opposite. They hate the righteous and they love the wickedness. There was this almost like savoring the chaos that was Wednesday as our media just jumped on it and celebrated it. And then now since then, there has just been complete and utter chaos as they just lob insults at each other, and they say despicable things about one another. And there's, it just, honestly, I was like, just come, Lord Jesus. I want your kingdom. If if this is your kingdom, and this is our kingdom, I don't want that. I want this. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. He has been anointed. He has been appointed king over all. Again, last week we saw that he was instrumental in creation. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is our good God king who rules 
and reigns. And so why is it important that this morning we think about the sovereignty of Jesus? Because we live in the midst of a culture where our kingdom is collapsing. We need to be reminded that Jesus is on his throne. He rules and reigns forever and ever. And his kingdom is a good kingdom. We can trust in his kingdom. We cannot trust in ours, but we can trust in his. We don't live for ours, we live for his. Our hope is there, it's not here. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is superior, he is sovereign. And then in verses 10 through 12, I want us to consider that Jesus is steadfast. He says, you Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Again, remember last week, we looked at how Jesus uh, created the world. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I think our author here is, again, explaining or showing his work. He's building upon his opening statement that Jesus was instrumental in creation and Jesus doesn't change. He upholds the universe. He is intimately connected with what is going on. He's here and while everything else is going to crumble, everything else is going to fade away, Jesus is steadfast and unchanging. This is going to be a, a bit of an overshare, but I don't care. Um, so several years ago, my wife got me these, these really cool pajama Santa boxers. And they're crazy comfortable. They're amazing. Um, and at this point, they are held together just by my love for them. They are so old and ratty. Like, I'm not allowed to leave our bedroom. I have to put sweatpants on over them now. I can't even be with my children in them. They're so torn up and beaten up. And... Here's, here's what our author is saying. Our earth is a pair of ratty old Santa boxers. It's going to be rolled up and thrown away. That's really what should, and like every week my wife's like, you should just throw those away. We can, they were from Walmart. Like they're not expensive. Like we'll get you new ones. I'm like, I don't want new ones. These are amazing. Our earth is going to go the way of, does anybody else have like old t-shirts or, or am I just by my, nope, I'm just by myself. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's cool. My friend's a therapist. I'll go see him this week. Um, that, you just like shook your head like emphatically like, no, of course not. We're Christians. Um, all right. So our earth, I have these old ratty Santa, Santa boxers. That's the direction our earth is headed. It just needs to be thrown away. But Jesus is the same. We can count on him. When everything else fades, when everything else falls apart. And so the reason why I think it's important for us to consider the steadfastness of Jesus this morning is we live in a world that's falling apart. We need to be reminded that our king hasn't changed. He's not left his throne. He's not unsure of this time. He's still powerful. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. His years have no end. Jesus has never been up for re-election. He rules forever. We need to be reminded. And last week I shared kind of the story of, of Hurricane Katrina and how helpful it was to, to look back and to remember the steadfastness of God in the midst of a tough and trying season. 
I wonder this morning if some of us need to, to consider the steadfastness or look back and remember, Jesus, how you've been present in hard times when everything else is falling apart. Jesus, you've been there. That gives us hope in our times of trouble. That Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's not left us. And then finally in verses 13 and 14, it says, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I think maybe most importantly of all of this is that we spend time this morning considering Jesus as our savior. That we get to inherit salvation because of the conquering work of Jesus on the cross. And we've talked a lot recently and we'll continue to talk about, you and I have, we have the sin problem that we have to do something with. And we either give it to Jesus and we, we become inheritors of salvation. We are rescued from sin. Again, remember last week as he's showing his work, what happened in verse three? Jesus made purification for our sin. He came to rescue us from our sin. We either trust in him as the one who guarantees our salvation or we stand opposed from him. And what does verse 13 say? We become like a footstool. His enemies, Jesus doesn't change. Jesus doesn't adapt. Jesus is forever, but we hold on to our sin and we stand as enemies. And one day our king will prop his feet up on us because we've stayed in rebellion with him, from him. So it's so important that we consider Jesus a savior the one who came and made purification for our sin, the one who came, left heaven to come to earth, to put on flesh because he loved you so much that he had to deal with wrath. He had to deal with our sin problem. And so he took it on himself. And now it says, we get to inherit salvation. That is a future promise. That is an upcoming guarantee. Take it to the bank that a day is coming when we won't struggle with sin anymore. We won't battle the flesh anymore. We will fully realize all that Jesus did on the cross for us without this sin problem. It's ours if we've considered and placed our faith in Jesus as Savior. This is a promise that is certain for those who would believe. And so this morning, if you have not considered Jesus as Savior, let me beg you to do so. To not waste another moment because the reality is Jesus rules and reigns and you stand opposed to him and he will judge you or you place your faith in Jesus and he will rescue you. And so this morning, I want us to consider the supremacy of Jesus. Think about all that Jesus has come to reveal, to reflect, to rescue us from, and how when we consider the supremacy of Jesus, it changes everything. And so you'll see on the bottom of your note sheets, I've got a few questions that I want to encourage. I did this last week. I hope you spent time in Hebrews 1. I hope you spent time considering the supremacy of Jesus, working through some things, spending time being still, spending time pressing into the Lord, spending time hearing from his word. And so here's a few more questions that I'd like you to go home with this week. Number one, as we've been through this entire chapter, what aspects of Jesus's supremacy impacted you? As we think about Jesus as 
Son, Jesus as Savior, as Superior, as Sovereign, as Steadfast. What maybe was the most profound? Spend time praying, spend time proclaiming, confessing Jesus in that way. Secondly, what do you believe the author of Hebrews is really dialing in? What does he want his audience to know and then why? Just reflect on what's going on in this passage. Why is he writing this in this way? I want you to spend time. Again, the series that we're in is called Higher Thinking. I want us to elevate our thought life, to go, to go higher with the Lord, to press in to the word of God. As we've seen over and over in chapter one, the importance of we have a God who speaks. Let's seek to know him through his word. Thirdly, how have you seen the steadfastness of Jesus present in your life? I think it's so helpful to remember what God has done in hard seasons and how God has been faithful and never left us and used even painful, tough circumstances to glorify himself and mature us in our faith. And so this, this week, spend some time remembering the steadfastness of Jesus. Fourth, why do you think life is different for those who see Jesus as sovereign and savior? What sets us apart? If you would say yes and amen, Jesus is king and Jesus is savior. He has rescued me from my sin. Why and how should life look different? And how does your life look different? Because of that truth. And then finally, and this is the one that gets me probably the most excited. What is one small step you can take this week to more deeply consider the supremacy of Jesus? I'm not asking you to read through the entire book of Hebrews. I'm not asking you to start tithing 75% or serve in children's ministry. You could do all of those, but I'm not asking you to. One small step. Maybe that's turn the radio off in your car and pray. Maybe that's turn on the Bible app instead of a podcast. Maybe that's Listen to a sermon instead of watching a Netflix show. Maybe that's open up, wake your, set your alarm 15 minutes earlier and open up your Bible and start following along with our reading plan through Exodus. A small step that would help put the supremacy of Jesus on greater display in your life.